real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you once again. And today we are talking about drug addiction, the idea of safe supply, and some solutions. And for that, we've got the big brains on the program. Uh, We've got Dr. Julian Summers from Simon Fraser University here. So Dr. Summers is a clinical psychologist and Simon Fraser University distinguished professor. Dr. Summers began his training under Dr. Bruce Allen in studies on how social experiences can cause addictions to begin and end. Dr. Summers was then mentored by Dr. Alan Marlett uh, in advanced clinical practices focused on relapse prevention, harm reduction, and mindfulness. For 15 years, Dr. Summers worked as a psychotherapist and trained clinicians in psychology, uh, medicine, and other clinical fields. He's consulted all across Canada and internationally. He's also uh, earned some local, national, and international awards for research in public interest as well as academic awards for excellence in teaching, research and service, and SFU's award for excellence. He's also got time to be uh, married with two sons. So welcome, Dr. Summers. It's great to be with you, man. That makes me feel old. Let's let's get into our discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe you'll date yourself when we get into your personal story. So great. We'll kind of start at the beginning so people get to know you. Um, tell us about you know growing up and, and life. Okay. Um, how much time you got? I, 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 uh, <laughs> so I was, I was born in London and my mom, um, who same last name as me, Summers, um, was a very young girl and uh, Catholic family. And I was uh, um, adopted out. And... Um, I was raised in Vancouver, um, in, in Canada, brought over here, um, and, uh, lived in, uh, this only child in a family for my first, uh, seven years until that family kind of fell apart. And, uh, the next few years were not the best for me. And I, um, uh, struggled quite a bit, especially, um, um, in uh, in school, and eventually um, I left school pretty early, and was raised by um, a family in in Colorado, um, who were my my godparents, but I didn't really know them um, much before mm-hmm. that. And it was essentially uh, um, just hard work on a ranch with uh, with other ranch hands, mostly. Uh, um hispanic and navajo workers um and they were just prepared to you know like i could i could do that for as long as it took me to figure out a plan and it took it took a couple of years um for me uh even just to figure out what to do but i wound up doing courses to get an equivalency in mm-hmm. high school and then started uh, uh at a local college and, and the town was uh, Durango, still is Durango, Colorado. I've been back there uh, several times since. And uh, so I started at Fort Lewis College, which is the local school. And um, 
I transferred eventually from there to um, Simon Fraser University because my adoptive mom um, was uh, quite ill with cancer by this time. So I wanted to be around and provide her with support. Mm. Um, once you know, once I sort of got got my got my feet under me. Um, so that's kind of how I got back into school, and um, I uh, I sub I was subsequently um, exposed to my my biological parents, so my 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 birth mother and and my and my father, who are not together, just actually never even met um, after after they um, um, they spent time making me. Yeah. Um, but um, but. But I spent some time with each of them, and, uh, and you know we were very close for a while, and then very not close, which is kind of where we are now. Mm. Um, but you know I've got my family, um, and throughout all that time, I think looking back on it, I realized that my connections to people in mentorship roles, um, as colleagues, and then as um, trainees. Um, um, that I've worked with, th those those relationships have been hugely, hugely meaningful in in my life. And in some ways, I think that you know the the way that I was raised um, has one of the blessings it's 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 afforded me. Yeah, is um, I, I you know I'm I'm almost always uh, very quick to realize how um, fortunate I am to have conversations like this one. And to be able to do the things that I do, um, because, you know, I, I know very well that for many people, it is not like this. Mm -hmm. Every day does not lead to encounters with other people who are, you know, decent and curious and interesting and generally mean, mean, mean you well. Um, so, uh, um, I, you know, I, I carry that as a source of motivation um, in, uh, in, in the work that I'm doing. Sounds amazing. You got quite the life, quite the life experience, even just before you get into school. <laughs> uh, so when you came from London, how old were you? Uh, about like three, uh, sort of just barely verbal. Oh, okay. Very young. Yeah, I was young enough to know which football team I cheered for, but that's about it. That's about it. Standard for uh, England, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you said you came over to Vancouver and then you left school uh early like what grade are we talking well so like the first time i had real problems in school is probably around grade five. Oh, really okay and uh i started school early i don't know quite what you know what foolishness led to that i was i started school early but um and it went okay for the first like several years actually but it was right around the time my my you know my 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 adoptive parents split up and it was very unpleasant for me mm. Very unpleasant for them too, <laughs> but it was unpleasant for me, and uh, that just you know had a had a really um, or coincided, I guess you know I don't I'm, I'm not trying to like pin everything on that, but but it, you know it coincided with things um, um, like really going poorly for me uh, in in a, in a lot of ways, just you know it's like socially, academically, um, sports was still okay, like that was still all right, but. Um, and then around really the very beginning, like as soon as high school. So I limped through elementary school. By the time we got to high school, I was really, uh, you know, not spending all my time in class. And, uh, and it was kind of, you know, just a matter of time before I was completely withdrawn from school. 
what were you finding were your best subjects in school? Because I imagine, you know, something that led you into the field you're in now, um, maybe in the sciences or what have you? Um, I, 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 I could do well at most things. Um, this, and this is, you know, I was one of those kids like, Oh, you know, oh, Julian, you mean you can, you can do anything you want if you put your mind to it. Right. I used mm-hmm. to see that. Right. <laughs> um, um, so honestly, I, I, it wasn't the, it wasn't the objective difficulty of any of the subjects. Um, at one point when I, when I reentered university, I was still kind of struggling with some mental health symptoms or mental illness symptoms, I should say. Um, and uh, uh, I took, you know, a whole roster of courses one semester and, and I, and I failed every single course. I just flat, I failed everything. Wow. And I had to kind of plead to the university to let me back in. And they did. And I, had, I had kind of had another realization at this point. And between the semesters, um, I, I realized that I needed to work a lot. Like I, I needed to um, uh, put in effort yeah. and, and focus. And, some of, and that some of my capabilities that had been really working against me, I could mobilize for, for me. Mm-hmm. And then I got a nothing worse than an A from that point on. Wow! Um, in in my in my undergrad years, and that's what got me a scholarship into graduate school in the states. Was I had this amazing you know looking record of of grades that was basically a product of being a um, a, a, a study addict, right? I just I made this the center of what I was doing. I was working like I had a part time job supporting myself. Yeah. And at this, this at this point in history, you could do that. You could you know you could you could actually like pay your rent and food on part time earnings, and <laughs> um, and still go to school. Um. So I, you know, so, but I just made that the, the centerpiece of my, of my life, my, my academics. Um, and uh, it was just, you know, a huge, a huge turnaround and then started opening doors. And then I, I realized, gee, this is, you know, this, this could, this could lead places. And I, I you know, I, I kind of haven't stopped. You know what I, and the one thing you mentioned there that I'm going to kind of pick up on, which I was thinking I would mention more in the solutions at the very end, but um, since you mentioned it, is anybody, no matter what anybody's struggling with, I always find the biggest part of the solution, or at least the point I've seen people turn it around on, is taking control of their own life, or uh, you know, accepting responsibility at that moment and saying, you know, uh, you know, whatever's uh, causing me harm or trouble, you know, one, can I turn it into a positive or a benefit, or or make it work for me? And then the other part is just you have that agency over your life. So I was like, okay, I need to be in control of some things here, one or two things, or maybe it's everything. But working, uh, you know, in your own favor at that point, it's the uh, the stuff I always find. And when we talk about, we'll talk about some of the the drug solutions here or uh, um, addiction stuff. But it's when people just kind of, I want to say, wallow in their own self-pity and, and different things, but also, um, you know, allow other people to keep telling them what they need and stuff. Like at some point they got to take ownership of their own life. 
Um, I get it's harder for some than others, but I think that's probably one of the main pieces that I've seen from my own experience. I don't know. Do you kind of have any thoughts on that? Well, I, 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 I very much agree with, with what you're saying, both from, uh, um, a more dispassionate kind of, uh, um, uh, psychological perspective and also very much from a personal perspective. Mm. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I, I think you're right that, um, a key part of it in, in addiction, we, you know, it's a, it's a cliche to, to hear people refer to hitting rock bottom and, yeah. and, and that kind of thing. Right. But, um, but, but there's a subtle um, part of it. It's not so subtle to, uh, to to us as individuals trying to make changes in our lives, but to observers, it's kind of subtle. What what observers see and kind of relate to, I think, is uh, when you make a, a conscious decision um, and you really feel it, like you feel like your body feels different it, when you make these kinds of decisions. It's like mm-hmm. you are in that moment, you're not actually exactly the same person anymore. It's this little, you know, um, transformation that happens and you feel it and then you step forward. Um, but what's, what's not visible in that, uh, to anyone, even, even to yourself, I think is in what ways did the world around you need to change Mm -hmm. in order for you to be able to make that transformation? Yeah. Right. Because I, you know, so much of the work I've done with people who are um, really like glaringly without resources and opportunities, people who are homeless, struggling with with mental illness. So their ability just to have periods of time where they're thinking clearly is diminished yeah. because of those things. And, um, and, and, and it, for, for most people in those circumstances, it's actually it's not reasonable to say make better decisions. Yeah. Right. It's just, that's, so there's a, and I think most people get that. So there's a certain amount of, um, uh, help. Yeah. Just put it really broadly. Um, as well as a certain amount of experiences, um, with agency, that term you used, like being, being experiencing self-control. I think there's a certain amount of that that most people, maybe everybody, needs to have before they can have this kind of uh, transformational experience that I referred to. Because I think it comes from self-belief. I think it comes from a deep down sense that even though you you don't know the details of how life can be better, mm-hmm. and that's it's a mystery, right? You don't you don't know um, what quite what is. Um, available to you but you but you're at least convinced that there is something better than what you're currently experiencing yeah you take a leap of faith right and uh yeah i i i I think that's 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 huge and probably something everyone can relate to yeah well and you know what and maybe i'll ask this now too um there's generally you hear that some of the users so like we'll talk drug users that they will, we're looking to break down the stigma, which stops them from accessing life-saving support and services. Now, this is my own personal view. I don't really, I have never really bought into that statement, but can you tell me kind of where that, maybe the, 
the origin of that or you know what makes that true. I've never found a good answer for it, which is why I'm saying I don't I haven't bought into that, but it's it's it just seems like a tagline that I see in every single news article, but they never give you a reason why. Like I I feel like more people just don't see kind of like you're saying it's a leap of faith. They don't see what, you know, the positive that could be ahead of them. So it's hard for them to make the change. They know what they've been doing and they're comfortable with that. But for somebody to go and say like, hey, I need um, uh, help, you know, are they just thinking that the person they go to ask for help is just going to laugh at them uh, or or ridicule them? I, I don't really see that. So um, can you tell me about that, like where that kind of comes from? Oh, man. So a lot of... <laughs> A lot of what we refer to, um, I mean, first of all, I, I'm with you in that a lot of the stuff that I hear that refers to stigma, stigma reduction, we're going to do this. And it, it also doesn't make sense to me either. Mm. And, I, and I often feel, you know, kind of bad about that because I'm a psychologist and I think, well, they're using a, they're using a psychological term stigma. So I shouldn't know really what they're talking about, yeah. but, um, but, you know, the way, the way I have made sense of it is, um, that stigma for starters is uh, some kind of sign about a person and uh, something about, it's like, you know, it's stigmata, right? So mm-hmm. it's some kind of sign, something about them, the way they talk, the way they look, you know, they've got ink on their neck, they've got a you know, nose piercing, whatever it is, right? The way they sound. And, and it's going to be some kind of sign about them that, that is going to cause people to react a certain way. So, um, and we have that in addiction, but it's not the way people in positions of authority are using the term. Mm-hmm. Because if we have um, doctors or lawyers or um, other people with addictions, we got really well uh, worked out forms of intervention for people who look that way, who look like people who we value in society. Um, and those treatments work incredibly well. I mean, the 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 however you want to you know examine them, the 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 rates of people um, going through with the treatments, the 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 effectiveness of the outcomes of those treatments, very very positive. On the other hand, if you if you're someone who doesn't look like a stereotypically valued member of society. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say you're unemployed, don't have much advanced education, um, and maybe have uh, uh, some mental illness symptoms as well as polysubstance. We've got a treatment system for you, but it looks nothing like the treatment system that we give to people who we value. Mm. The people who we value get essentially psychosocial and intensive forms of support that last a long time. And they are strongly discouraged from using any kind of medication, even as an aid to the treatment, like say methadone. Oh, really? Okay. If you're a poor, if you're a poor person, you get only methadone yeah. and no psychosocial interventions. So hmm. to me, that is very clear evidence of stigma. You look this way, you get this. You look that way, you get that. Okay. Now, these treatments, these treatments in our public system um objectively suck mm-hmm. they, that is they don't help many people actually overcome their addictions if they're going to overcome their addictions it's going to be doing stuff on their own separate from what the public is offering and so now we've got people in positions of authority 
talking mainly about those individuals who would use the public system, the ones who I'm saying we are clearly stigmatizing because we don't give them effective treatment. Mm -hmm. And and now they're kind of using this term in this weird way, like we're going to actually reduce stigma by more effectively engaging people in stigmatizing services. Like what, like, whoa, 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 whoa. like how does that, how does that work? And the people themselves don't want to go because they can see what the services are all about. Yeah. It's about um, success is measured by retaining them. So the more days, the more months, the more years you're going and getting the medication that they're dispensing, that's success. But most people mm-hmm. with addictions, when they encounter, when they're seeking help, they like help actually, like maybe simply getting off drugs, if that could be envisioned as a long-term objective. But what they see, what they're presented with, doesn't really give them any basis for thinking that that's, that's going to happen. So people self-select away from these things. And, and no amount of talk from leaders about you know this, this, this convoluted way of referring to stigma reduction is going to persuade people that the services are actually more effective than they are. So why would they measure it in the amount of days that a person is basically kept on the system? That sounds like a terrible idea. We want to get people off the system. Yeah, I know exactly. It's it's this is the the stigma in action. Yeah. Um, the the so the, you know the 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 rationale that's given is that um, there there is evidence that if people over a long period of time, our team has published evidence like this. If people are followed for a long period of time, and they're receiving methadone. And you compare the times that they're receiving methadone to the times they're not receiving methadone. They are less likely to be convicted of crimes, Mm -hmm. to be hospitalized, and to die during the periods when they're on methadone versus off. Now, there are other ways of explaining why that might be the case rather than methadone works. It could be that people, to be on methadone, need to have better things going on in their lives. They need to be more stable. They need to be a bit more sort of optimistic that if they take care of themselves, if they do things for themselves, that they could get better. Whereas other times, it's their lives could be more chaotic. Not only chaotic in that they don't show up and take methadone, but more chaotic in that they could get into a fight or injured um, or overdose or commit an offense. So um, it's not clear, you know, that 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 the answer is methadone works. In fact, it's probably not the case. You kind of brought it to that accountability piece, though. Again, is we're back yes. to like maybe they're at a point where they're saying, "Okay, I need I need to change." Even if it's just one other thing, it's methadone and one other thing. It's still more than the last guy did. <laughs> exactly, and and for many, the one other thing is not even is not available. That that is the only thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I should point out that that methadone didn't get started the way it's being used right now. When it got when it was introduced, it was uh, a component of a very um, well-rounded um, intervention plan that was organized. The success in these initial methadone programs was, first of all, people being off methadone and off other drugs too, but more importantly being um, members of the community member and, and having jobs, being members of families, having stable um, lives that were fulfilling. And the idea is that by making lives that are um, inherently fulfilling, 
um, that's the best way to help ensure that somebody is going to remain free of addiction. Mm-hmm. So these, these initial methadone programs use the drug uh, on a very time-limited basis, and it was not the main part of the intervention, but it's morphed over time. And now we have people um, in some of our research using methadone for you know, 17, 20 years, no real change in their life circumstances. Um, and, uh, and this is being considered, this is now what's referred to as sort of methadone therapy. It's, uh, um, it, it serves a number of interests, yeah. right? It serves the interests of professionals, pharmaceutical companies, and those are now the, the main forces behind, um, the, the promotion of a, of an expanded public supply of addictive drugs. Okay. Um, I want to talk a bit about your career path and then we'll get into, uh, stuff about the database. Um, but, uh, so your career seems like it's mostly been focused on from what I could read about it was uh, a lot of stuff on addictions, prevention, and then the reduction, uh, of use. So am I correct in saying that that's kind of been the through throughout the whole career? Yeah. I've, I've pretty much stuck with addiction since 1986. So you're a psychotherapist by trade. How does that come into uh, this kind of world? Like, what are you doing when it comes down to, I guess, drug use addictions? Um, well, um, maybe, maybe, so maybe the clearest way to, to answer is, is, is to summarize um, where uh, sort of my training and early career took me. Um, I, 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 I worked with a psychologist um, named Bruce Alexander uh, for several years. Bruce had done some um, animal studies on addiction. Um, they're, they're known, one, one, one group of these studies is known collectively as, as the rat park experiments. And it's basically showing that um, rats isolated in cages will show a preference for morphine solution over food. And if you take those same rats and put them into social settings where they've got lots of other options and things to play with and other, including other rats, that they will um, quite markedly shift their preference to food over morphine solution. Mm. And um, I, uh, uh, this, this kind of lines up with a lot of other evidence um, from, from among human samples where you can't you know, do those sorts of um, manipulations. So I went. I went from from there to uh, um, working with Alan Marlat in Seattle, and Alan at the time was one of the world's foremost addiction researchers in in clinical psychology. So that's really where the psychotherapy components came in, and we had an incredible group of of mentors, um, at least for for people in the psychotherapy game. Um, you know, there were there were. Uh, um, some of the world's best people in areas like um, borderline personality disorder. So Marshall Linehan developed a, um, an intervention known as dialectical behavior therapy that's kind of gone, gone global. Uh, there was um, uh, some of the world's greatest uh, um, depression researchers, uh, Neil Jacobson and others, and uh, John Gottman uh, doing marital and couples therapy. And we were sort of just all in this in- incredibly elevated you know, myself and there were, you know, four other trainees in my year. So it's a tiny little group of people. And you get, you just get to spend tons of time with, with, with 
amazing uh, thinkers and and very gracious people. Mm-hmm. So I was I was so motivated through that experience. Um, I I took a job at at um, UBC after I finished my training in hospital work, uh, training um, a new psychotherapists. So so people who who were going through the same type of experience that I had been through. And after about five years, I really realized that I could keep doing that. I could keep training. I could keep doing my own practice. And I would have almost no likelihood whatsoever of making an impact on addiction as I saw it in in BC and in Canada. And so it was at that point that I started to make a shift toward um, uh, government policies. Okay. That, that are related to addiction and doing research um, to show that the policies that we implement have a have a profound effect and that we can do a lot better. I'm still and I'm still trying to make that case. <laughs> well, I was going to be one of the things I was going to ask was how much of your time is spent between I guess it'd be practicing research and uh, wherever else your work kind of takes you, which sounds like it's uh, I don't know is it lobbying you would say or just research for government purposes yeah research research with um folks in government Mm. is is what i've been doing uh it's uh um so i mean but to answer your question about sort of like proportions of time when i you know when i started it was 100 percent clinical practice Mm. then uh training clinicians uh very little research um i just wasn't interested in that and um, then over the last, I guess, maybe 25 years, it's shifted so that it's uh, overwhelmingly um, now, you know, in the biz, I think we refer to it as knowledge translation, basically trying to get stuff that we know better into practice so it can make a difference, right? And uh, that's kind of where I am now, but I spent um, about 15 years focusing the the majority of my attention on um, doing research on clinical interventions. So still being a therapist, still thinking like a therapist, but mainly concerned about doing high quality research that could be published in peer reviewed journals mm-hmm. um, on how these psychological interventions uh, help people and simply showing you know what they were capable of achieving. Well, and that's it makes me think of like in our our world being in policing. You have information and then you have intelligence and it's essentially information is little bits of data all over the place and maybe they they can mean something themselves, but once you put it all together and mobilize it, now it can really, you know, take off. It helps investigations, it progresses things. So, um, yeah, I kind of get what you're saying there. Uh, So with that kind of in mind, I wanted to talk a bunch about this article that was in the National Post recently and then this has to do with the database that you created. Um, so maybe I'll give a little bit of my understanding, but then I'll ask you to take us through, maybe chronologically would be the easiest way, or if you know a better way to explain it. Um, but uh, we'll kind of work through what this is and what's been going on. So from what I was reading in the, the post article, and I'll post a link to it when I do put the episode up, just so people can read what you were talking about in there. Um, you had this database. And uh, it was called the Inter-Ministry Evaluation Database. You created this in 2004. And this is a database that, um, here I got the exact 
wording that was used for it. Uh, it basically linked data about vulnerable populations uh, across the various BC ministries. And I'll let you kind of explain what uh, what you were looking for in there. But this is like a, a very important database. It was used in provincial reports. Um, it was cited in 60 different peer-reviewed publications. Uh, like this is no joke. <laughs> so can you kind of talk to us about, first of all, why this database was created? So what was going on in 2004 that made this happen? And then essentially, what is it and what it does? Yeah. Um, so the the there was in the in the in the late nineties in and some people might remember this this particular work. Um, it was led by um, uh, a, a provincial judge in BC, Tom Gove, Thomas Gove, and and um, Judge Gove was asked to um, investigate the um, uh, the death of a, a a very young boy, Matthew Vaudrill. Um, and because because the circumstances of his death included the knowledge that many different care providers had encountered Matthew and had recorded their their very serious concerns for his well-being and welfare but they never communicated with each other and so um the the resulting report uh, by judge gove um laid all this out and emphasized that um, people working on on behalf of uh, of the public in, in government sort of frontline roles um, needed to be supported to to um, share information more effectively, mm. and that if they did, then then um, um, some deaths could surely be be prevented. So, um, only a few years after that, um, I was I had been working already with. Uh, some of the senior folks in the provincial government, different ministries, um, health, um, child and family development. Um, and I started working with people in the justice area, so AG and Solicitor General. And they knew that um, this was a, basically a committee of deputy ministers. They knew that there were clients that they were seeing across their um, respective ministries who were not being helped um, by the ways that their different services impacted these people's lives. In fact, they they were concerned that for some people, those uh, impacts were actually net harmful mm -hmm. to their lives. So imagine somebody who's you know um, remanded um, and uh, you know maybe there are always always good specific reasons for what what's being what's what's happening but big picture someone's remanded and then they lose their their place mm -hmm. as a result of being away and now they're discharged to homelessness and now they're arrested um and and charged so it's that you know that that kind of thing so um so I, I was invited it was really, it's really there. It was really their idea. This is in 2002. I was invited to do a two-year project, a, a proof of concept, to see if it's possible to link information at the population level for people who are seen across multiple different sectors. And the ones of greatest interest were health, justice, and social welfare. Those three. And, you know, just for, for young folks, you, you know, you you, you got to be reminded that there was a time that some of us remember before personal computers, and 
where, you know, these were open questions, like, can we link all this information? Can we derive some useful meaning mm-hmm. from, from all this digital stuff we're collecting? So, as I said, we spent two years doing that. The key focus was on, at, at the time, this is a, um, a kind of an anachronistic term, I think, prolific offenders. Mm-hmm. But, but at the time, in the early 2000s, that's how, that, that was a big concern. And how many of the people that were calling, you know, this label also have been diagnosed with mental illnesses, maybe have been hospitalized for mental illnesses. What about substance use? There, um, there were other sort of thoughts, the so, so-called mentally disordered offenders. There, were, you know, there was this kind of um, um, jargon in use. So, um, so we started to compile information. We showed that indeed we could um, link information on everyone in BC, um, do it safely and securely, and that um, we could not only that, but we could um, we could we could re- produce some intelligence or some meaningful results from all this data. Mm-hmm. And so, um, one of the first things we showed was that um, it didn't it didn't really uh, the the likelihood of being reconvicted after initial conviction did not go up if someone was diagnosed with a mental disorder, say like depression, even schizophrenia. Uh, compared to uh, people who'd been convicted without any diagnosis. However, if someone had been diagnosed with a substance use disorder, the likelihood was substantially greater, like two and a half times greater, that they would be reconvicted. And if they had been diagnosed with a substance use disorder and a mental disorder, it was over three times the the, the probability. So that that really got us launched. And in 2004, as you you said earlier, Hmm. we really started from this proof of concept phase, moving into what was then a steady state. And we continued to use these data, uh, um, add to them uh, based on evidence of need or or rationale right up until uh, um, 2021. I want to just maybe get a distinguishment between mental health and then the uh, addiction side of things. And I was trying to... um, think of this, like, how do I even ask this question? Because some of this stuff's above my head. But, uh, and it might be a bit of a the chicken and the egg argument, but it's, can they be in the same conversation? Like, is, so mental health, uh, how I might know it as somebody who knows nothing, but it's like an imbalance of chemicals or hormones or something in the body. And then, but drugs is like an outside factor causing things to your body so do drugs just cause mental health or is it like one in the same or can you even talk about them in the same uh breath like does that make sense yeah Yeah. these are for sure um we 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 have not and and your 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 you know what what your your question reflects that we haven't done a great job um um explaining what's going on in, in, in mental illness and in addiction. We use these, we use euphemisms all the time, right? Like we don't, we don't talk about mental illnesses. We talk about mental health Mm -hmm. or mental health problems or things that don't even make sense, like mental health disorders, like, like you mean mental illness, right? Um, So we, we have this very vague um, and confusing landscape of terms that really doesn't, you know, advance things very much. 
it's important to note, I guess, for starters, that the way that we classify mental illnesses, including substance use disorders, is all in the same context. It's all in the same uh, framework. Okay. And um, also that every single diagnosable condition is based on things that we can observe exclusively. Mm. That is, there is no biological test for any mental disorder. Hmm. So what, what's been promoted as biological imbalances and things of that nature um, appears to have been um, uh, overstated. Overstated in terms of its significance. Not that there aren't differences, but that um, they, are, they are not necessarily differences that signify the underlying cause of the symptoms or the source of distress. Pharmaceutical companies and biologically minded people would love that it was so, and would, and, and of course, love for the public to, to, to believe that that is, in fact, what's happening. That, that is, that their molecules are correcting the underlying biological imbalance. But now decades of research have shown that that is not the case. And that what we see in terms of biological changes associated, say, with addictions are very similar, in fact, overwhelmingly the same, whether we're talking about an addiction to alcohol, an addiction to opioids, or an addiction to gambling. Okay. Right? So um, these are, and, and and the signature that explains these biological differences um, is more consistent with what we what we know about learning and how people learn and orient to rewards. And um, but the fact that they're the same among people whose addictions don't involve drugs is 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 hugely meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, so the um, there is overlap also between what we what are what we call addictions and and um other other disorders they'll they'll differ in terms of the core um symptoms the defining symptoms so for example there's there's a lot of overlap between um um anxiety disorders um mood disorders like depression and substance use disorders and and i think in the general public we know this right like people people are um you know sad and self-medicate or anxious and self-medicate mm-hmm. and that's kind of how we how we put it together i think in, in in common sense but it's still the case that with anxiety disorders there is a a, a central feature that that is not the same as substance use say um uh um the experience of trauma or in the case of mood disorders, there's a central feature, let's say, very low mood, depression. Yeah. Other things can be the same, uh, but, but these central features differ um, and they overlap. Um, but substance use and substance use disorders, now I'll give the example of you know, poisonings so much on people's minds these days, so-called overdose. About half of people who survive an over, uh, a poisoning episode were suicidal at the time of the um, the poisoning. And the likelihood of experiencing suicidal thoughts goes up the more prior poisonings the individual has survived. So there's, 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 there's very clear evidence of a kind of a, um, a, a, a leakage yeah. across 
different so-called types of mental disorders where what differs is the central is that kind of cardinal feature is it mainly about depression is it mainly about trauma is it mainly about substance use but linked to these central features is a, a kind of a mess that can be true across multiple so-called categories of disorders okay well so when kind of getting back to the database on this so this database was um kind of measuring a whole host of factors. And like you were saying, it had to do with health, justice, social welfare. Um, so what were some of the things that you were mentioning once this database was up and running? And then can you kind of walk us through, you know, w- you know where the studies led and then what you're into now? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, one of the areas of interest, and I, maybe I'll add just as a, a sort of a, a, a something that runs through all this is I approached all this whole phase of my work um, still as a psychotherapist. And my, my attention now was um, uh, the government, people in government. I, w- I, was, I, was, I was trying to think of how, how would people in decision-making roles um, be most likely to um, um, make, to to use information um, that points to opportunities to improve things mm-hmm. for people uh, that I'm I'm concerned about, um, and so in order to do that, I I thought it would be important to develop the research questions with those people, um, the people who were trying to help, and people in government. Um, I thought it would be important that that government uh, should mainly sponsor this research. If if they really think it's useful, then what better way of showing that than to than to fund the research? Mm-hmm. This is not, by the way, this is not super expensive research. My salary has always been paid for by the university, uh, so there are salaries for trainees, and, uh, like graduate students, that kind of thing. Um, it's it's not terribly expensive, but still, if government's willing to put up, you know. 20,000, 50,000 to do a, a project, then I, I have greater confidence that they're likely to, to read the results versus if I, you know, get a grant and do the study and then say, hey, here, like, like read this. Yeah. So we proceeded more or less in, in that way, doing um, research on questions that were important to folks in the province or federally. So hey, we've got that drug treatment court. We've got a drug treatment court and it's it's expensive. It's seeing like you know, thousands of people, is it working? How about that community court? Um, how's that? How's that? What about what about street outreach teams? What about integrated uh, approaches, cross ministry approaches to try and address homelessness and crime among people with mental illness? How's that going? Um, where, by the way, so every all these questions we've answered and and they're published and and available in 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 in, in um, uh, most of them. Op- openly available um, to, to members of the public. We tried to get as much of our work into the public domain versus behind a, you know, a journal paywall. Mm-hmm. But um, all these things that we've, we've answered. So then we got to, well, where, where are the heaviest concentrations of, of, of people in BC who are basically in some kind of a proverbial revolving door? They're in and out of hospital for mental illness. They're in and out of jail. They're, um, uh, on uh, they're requiring income assistance and emergency shelter grants. So you know, like how many people are there who who you know meet different levels of criteria, like 
10 or more offenses, two or more hospitalizations, like, you know, these kinds of things. Where, where are they? And, um, and what happens over time? Back to the amazing thing about computers. We can now look at over 10, 15 years, do people start off in, in, in communities with these kinds of struggles and then move or do they stay there? Yeah. What, you know, what happens? So we did a lot of um, work like this mapping where there's evidence of need, uh, detailing which of the interventions that we're currently funding are resulting in uh, positive, I mean, comparatively positive outcomes for people. And um, uh, we've also, with people's consent, accessed these, uh, their data um, as they are participating in uh, randomized controlled trials. This is probably our, our, our clearest way of identifying um, differences in, in interventions where we can actually randomly assign people to you know, intervention A, intervention B, intervention C, um, and then stay in touch with them for you know, several years. Yeah. And, um, and see, how, see how things are going. So it's, it provides a very clear insight and into things that where you really need these kinds of administrative data because the because the time frames are long people don't always remember like was i in hospital like what was that for exactly yeah and uh and they may not and they may not always want to say right like they'll give us access to the information to use it uh confidentially protect their privacy but if we're asking people straight up you know Hey, you know, were you were you were you in prison and they were remanded, but it was something they disagreed with and they really didn't like it? They're not always going to say yeah, right? Yeah. So, um, so we we used the information in in that way. The last thing that we did um, was uh, we we showed the province that um, that there were really alarming increases in the frequency of involuntarily hospitalizing people for substance use disorders or for mental disorders, like either one, that they'd more than doubled over a period of a few years. Mm. And we also showed that in our provincial corrections facilities, um, the, um, uh, the, the proportion of people that were detained, whether it's remanded or sentenced, and people who know the system will, 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 will realize in Canada that there are large proportions that are remanded to custody, large, it's about 50-50 in BC, remanded versus sentenced, but they all wind up, basically, um, it's like involuntary hospitalization, they're being involuntarily detained, right? Yeah. For every single yeah. one of them, if you open the door, they would leave. So it's involuntary. And the proportion that had been diagnosed with a mental disorder, a substance use disorder, or both before they were locked up had gone from something like 45% to over 75% in that same few year window. Hmm. And um, it was shortly after that, that we were sort of asked to step down. So, yeah, it, well, one thing I want to point out, and maybe it's like a really good summary of what you're saying here is so the database basically measured days spent in hospital, detentions, criminal convictions, medications, and income assistance. And I thought, like, that sounds like a great way to measure things. You're covering uh, not just the health side, but you've got some of the justice side because it's it all overlaps. Um, and then it was kind of accurately measuring the impacts of government policies. So I'm guessing this was showing that policies weren't working, or at least not as they were maybe saying they're working. <laughs> well, th so th things were clearly getting worse. 
in recent years in terms of um, like this, like the things that I've mentioned, the num numbers of people um, involuntarily hospitalized, numbers of people convicted who, who were experiencing mental illnesses and addictions. Um, you know, we also see the, I mean, but, the, but this, that's not, that's not a finding that, that any government um, should really be, um, you know, like, like, like embar so embarrassed by that they're going to suppress it. I mean, the, the much more, the much more damaging finding uh, in an obvious sense is the numbers of people who are dying. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you, you know, it, it, if you simply think through, like, how can you have a death crisis that escalates? Yeah. Right. As we do with poisonings, because because just just to sort of think, think that through from a basic way, month over month, year over year, if you've got an increasing death crisis, you need to be replacing the numbers of people in crisis faster than you're killing them. Yeah. Right. So so the deaths are the tip of an iceberg. And if the deaths are going up, the iceberg's getting bigger. Mm -hmm. Right. So where else do we see the iceberg? Involuntary hospitalizations, numbers of people incarcerated. We're using our institutional capacity more and more to contain other aspects of the iceberg. Yeah. Right. Before yeah. people wind up perishing. And so um, this, I think, in an obvious way, should all hang together for people in decision making roles. That it, and, 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 and more importantly, I guess provide some insight into where government can begin intervening. Um, we, we, we had also by this time, uh, like only a couple of years ago, we'd completed those randomized trials. And one of the key things that had been shown, and this is across the country, was that it's possible to um, intervene with people who've been homeless for 10 years, who've got like 10 uh, convictions on average, who've been hospitalized a bunch, all experiencing serious mental illnesses and addictions, it's possible to, in, in year one, achieve immediate, massive reductions in the likelihood of being convicted. So the precise number is a 71% reduction versus leaving them where they are, and about a 50% reduction in medical emergencies. And the kicker is the intervention costs the same as leaving them out on the street, huh. right? So we had we had put this together thinking along COVID lines because remember COVID, we, we have this crisis, we do some randomized controlled trials, we figure out the vaccine works better than the placebo. And then the next step is, okay, how fast do we get the vaccine out to as many people as possible? It's about implementation. So we had the same thing. We had this crisis, mm -hmm. this intervention costs the same, and um, the results are, are just massive. So let's talk about implementation. So we drew up an implementation plan. And one week, <laughs> one week after delivering the implementation plan, we got a letter out of the blue uh -huh. saying, uh, thanks for the last 20 years. Please arrange to destroy the database in the next three weeks. Sanitize your hard drives and then confirm in writing that you've done that. Thanks again. And that and that was and that that's how that went. And needless to say, the the, the current provincial government um, has no interest whatsoever in taking the results that have been generated as any basis for you know what they're what they're doing um, in response to these crises. And is this just um, them basically not wanting to admit that 
you know, uh, what we've been doing hasn't been working? Is it, it, does it kind of boil down to just that? There seems to be some of that, but there, there also is a, um, uh, a group that people who have more, much more sway than me mm. in, in BC scene, um, who, um, are, uh, um, strongly in favor of expanding a, um, a publicly funded addictive drug supply, what they, what they refer to as safe supply. And some of them are, uh, some of the senior people um, are themselves owners or co-owners of uh, drug companies. Mm -hmm. and, this is, and this is not like, you know, this is not some private information that I have. This is, this is in the public domain. Yeah. Um, or, uh, or vending machines for drugs. And they're, they're among um, the people who have um, really been responsible for public health decision-making in BC for a number of years and who are on the inside. Um, and they've been successful in persuading um, people in decision-making roles that they are right mm -hmm. um, in, in what they're advocating for. And, you know, it, for whatever reason, no one... Um, questions whether these individuals have conflicts or even if actually if they have the qualifications necessary to be designing addiction policy for British Columbians you know it's it's it, it's key to just observe that that what's happening here in BC with with the combination of decriminalization and a public supply of addictive drugs is unique on planet earth. Mm -hmm. And if you look at um, what people in, in my field have, have been writing and concluding even recently on, about what policy directions we should be going in, um, the one, one large study done by the, led by Stanford University and, and the Lancet Medical Journal and known as the Stanford Lancet Commission, they list in this 51 page document um, many, many things that we should be doing in order to help reduce the crisis. Actually, a lot of them are being implemented in Alberta. Mm. But, um, but, but among the things they say not to do, they list two. One is no place should be implementing vending machines to dispense drugs or um, try to introduce a pharmaceutical supply of drugs in the hope of displacing the illicit trade. So these are the two things they say, by the way, don't do these things. Those two things are at the top of the BC agenda. Really? So it's, it's a, it's a, it's just a remarkably um, backward insular um, approach that we're taking that really has self-interest all over it. Mm -hmm. And the public just has not been informed yet. It's uh maybe a little lighthearted on this, but um, just, it's funny talking about all this and, uh, you know, uh, all the backdoor deals and those types of things that could happen. And then I just picture a guy in his coveralls wheeling in the vending machine and somehow he gets involved in the conversation. And it's like, <laughs> this guy is not part of the normal circle of people. Like how'd the vending machine guy get in on this deal? <laughs> the, um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, you, you know, bringing things to light, I, I feel like we're supposed to be in an open society where we can offer solutions and not shut people down. I think uh, most people know that. Um, some of the stuff that's happened to you is like your project is, has been shut down. Um, you've been getting silenced in different ways. 
Um, you also had, I guess, some people lobbying against you speaking at uh, like some sort of event. So did that, was that successful? Like, did you end up getting uh, stopped from attending or were you permitted to speak? Yeah, there's, um, it, I mean, it, 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 it is, a, um, uh, especially in BC, um, there's, there's a very, very, um, I've learned limited tolerance for dialogue um, on, on issues um, re- relating to drug policy, actually relating to anything that questions what the people in power are are promoting. Mm. So some some colleagues and I um, did uh, a review on uh, public supply of addictive drugs. So this is a you know what what advocates refer to as safe supply. We we didn't use the term because it's um, um, it, it seems to suggest that there's already some evidence of safety. Yeah. Uh, um, to 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 commend that title and and we didn't know that there was so we chose this you know more descriptive title and we and we published this review we 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 showed that um there there at the time um wasn't any evidence demonstrating the effectiveness of what was being recommended and we raised uh, a number of questions that also hadn't been addressed such as what would the eligibility criteria be mm-hmm. so you know, one of my concerns is people with serious mental illnesses. Um, it is, it is, I hope most people will, will see uh, that, that it is, it is kind of on the face of it, a bad idea to contemplate giving combinations of methamphetamine, cocaine, or other stimulants to people who have bipolar disorder mm-hmm. and where you could trigger mania, for instance, or, you know, other, there are other just clearly dangerous potential interactions with, with serious mental illness. So what are the eligibility criteria? Because those have not been written down anywhere. Yeah. What about the, uh, what about the, the, the types and mixtures of drugs that would be dispensed? And what about frequency? Like for how, and, and you need these in order to actually even have a chance to answer another key question, which is what's it going to cost? Yes. So the fact that we are not answering these preliminary questions means that we can't even estimate year one costs, year two costs. And then what's the exit ramp? Like, how do we, what's then what, right? So we raise, we raise these questions and the authors of the papers advocating for safe supply, their term, um, went immediately to media, got on the evening news, said, no one should read this report. It's a piece of poop. And, um, and then they found out where I was scheduled to talk and started writing to conference organizers saying, hey, you got to uninvite this guy. So this is from the BC Center for Substance Use is where this is, this is the, the group that's, that's doing this work. Mm-hmm. Um, they've uh, um, remained just really, really nasty. Um, they're, they're writing to um, people in, in, in government roles saying that I'm not qualified to address issues, that the fact that I'm involved means that you know, they're going to withhold any advice that they could give because they're so offended. And um, it's, you know, I was not expecting this. Yeah. Like I knew that we were on different sides uh, uh, of, of, of issues, uh, at least, in, I mean, different sides in that we, we saw things differently. But I was fully anticipating when we started to, raise some of this that um that there would that it would generate a discussion yeah a dialogue (laughs) yeah 
yeah, but instead it's triggered this kind of this backlash, which now makes me, you know, more, more sort of suspect that they, they don't actually have rejoinders. They don't have any kind of science behind their position. Mm-hmm. They're now feeling threatened and they're trying to simply shut me up. But so far that's not working. So um, one of the things I want to make sure we touch on uh, is kind of some of the solutions. And this is mentioned in the National Post article talking about the Portugal model. I think people have uh, completely bastardized whatever this model is. I don't think anyone actually knows what it is. Um, can you explain it and tell us, are, are we trying to emulate that here in Canada or are we just cherry picking certain things and, and making a like a mockery of this whole thing? So fortunately, Canada is a, a big and varied place. And um, so depending upon which region hmm. we focus on, um, my answer would be would be different. Um, fortunately, well, we're so in some cases we're doing actually a, a very um, uh, high fidelity job of implementing the things that Portugal did that are translatable to our context and that really are the active ingredients. Um, and and the and the province that stands out most for being down the track on this is Alberta. But other provinces are following suit also. They're, 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 they're studying the architecture and are um, uh, going down that same path. BC is about as kind of retrograde as, as, you, could, as you could imagine. Really? Um, in, terms of, in terms of cherry picking and just really kind of missing the plot. But let me, let me I didn't answer your question, like what did they do? So yeah. in, in, 19, in 2000, they, they introduced this uh, national strategy for the fight against drugs. And um, one element of it was, was to change the legal status um, of, of possession of drugs from a criminal offense to an administrative offense. Prior to this, police were really not having too much to do with um, individuals over drug possession. It's like way too frequent. They they had the worst open air drug scene in Europe, the highest rates of death. Um, And almost all Portuguese towns had places where there were these open air drug scenes, people, people living rough. And it was a true like social crisis. So, they introduced a massive and multifaceted plan that um, of which decriminalization is as a tiny part. The people responsible, many of them are around today, still in roles of responsibility. And they're on the record saying, if all we did was decriminalize, we would have made things much worse. Oh, because that that's about the only part anyone talks about in Canada outside of yeah, basically yeah. just building people free homes. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's and it's and it 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 really shows the strength of um, pharmaceutical companies mm. as influencers on public dialogue because they provide funding to researchers, they provide funding to create research positions, mm-hmm. and um, and and then they influence the federal government in terms of where our tax dollars go for um, research grants. So it's all, it's a big, you know, incestuous uh, pro-industry movement or industry, industry uh, influenced movement. And that, that uh, doesn't have a, 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 there's no 
alternative kind of commercial interest to stand up against that. It's kind of like standing up against the the National you know, Rifle Association or something. Like who's who's the industry group that's going to do that? Yeah. The arguments, by the way, are very similar, right? Like like yeah. it's 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 the same absurdity. Um, it's not drugs that are killing people. It's the wrong drugs. So what we got to do is increase the supply of the right drugs, and that's how we're going to save lives, right? It's like mm-hmm. guns. It's not it's not it's not it's not the guns are the problem. We need to get more guns in the hands of good people. To protect it, right? This, this, this is the argument. So, um, Portugal had, you know, they're they're anti-drug. Yeah, <laughs> Portuguese people don't 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 see taking more drugs as as a good thing. It's not a lifestyle choice. So they 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 enabled police using an administrative sanction to get in people's faces, go up to them, and say, "You've got to come with me to what's known as a dissuasion commission." The Dissuasion Commission is kind of a neutral, intermediate body, neutral in the sense that they are not the front door of their own treatment center. Yeah. Or there, but they but they take the person that, that comes with the police, they hear what the what the situation is, and they say, okay, our role really is to help make sure that you don't come back here. So depending on what the person's circumstances are, the 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 ones that required housing help re-entering the workforce, maybe like months to years of stabilization, establishing a sense of community, the reciprocity of being a a, a citizen um, without drugs. They had 64 therapeutic communities, zero consumption sites. Yeah. Uh, um, You only need consumption sites if you've got a population of drug users who are homeless. Um, if if you if you're if you're prepared to address housing need, um, and I think of this as harm reduction, a big part of my training was in harm reduction. If if someone is is has uh, is 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 homeless, has no job, has no friends, has untreated mental illness, we can reduce the harms of all four of those things. Mm-hmm. And if we do that, we give them a much greater chance of addressing their substance use problems. And that and that's what our research has 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 done over these over these many years. So Portugal, armed with a massive investment in therapeutic communities and other community-based resources, so not everybody needs you know that multi-year thing. Some of them need a place to live and and and, and a support worker. Um, some of them need you know various things in between. Um, but they 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 came with all of those resources and a commitment to implement them, and that's really that that's how they made their difference. And this was nationwide, so there wasn't like individual provinces all picking their different strategies so they have the they have the benefit of being able to um describe design and implement a nationwide strategy and and of course in our in our setting we do that at the provincial or territorial level mostly so that's why we see um a a, a huge uh um level of familiarity with what Portugal actually did that resulted in change with works like the Stanford Lancet Commission's work that I referred to and other kind of major um, important examples of of, uh, guidance documents from the addiction field that are addressing addressing these issues. And then we have, on the other hand, we have BC that is not paying attention to any of those documents at all. In fact, you know, if you, you you bring them up and they just like people don't want to listen to them, mm. um, they they make fun, or they I should say they mock 
the idea that people can overcome addictions. Um, and, uh, you know, like when I, when I, when I have presented to this, the current government here in BC, um, evidence related to recovery from addiction, eye rolling, um, and just sort of sidelong glances. And, and I, and I get comments like, well, not everybody's ready to embrace, you know, religion or go to AA meetings as, as though that's kind of what I'm talking about. Cause it's not, mm-hmm. that's, that's, you know, got relatively little to do with actually understanding the, the fact that people recover from addiction, which has as Portugal's cases is, is powerfully illustrative. What makes the biggest difference for most people is not any kind of a formal program or a professional intervention. It's, um, uh, having a different relationship with the things that are around us every day, um, your family, your friends, your work, um, uh, neighbors, community involvements. It's cultivating relationships. It gets back to something we touched on earlier, that, 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 that sense of, of the possibility of being a, um, a different, a healthier Person, not knowing how you're going to do that, but but at least having the sense that that's attainable, maybe even necessary. Sometimes it's with a gun to your head. You you have to make this decision, yeah, right? Yeah. But but it's 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 getting to the point where where that's possible. And then the things that make a difference are not like you know experts. It's 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 the it's the it's it's the way we build a life around us involving other people. The fewer experts, the better, right? For most people. Yeah. Well. Um... I think we kind of covered most of what we were looking to get to today. Is there anything you think we missed? I don't want to uh, cut you off or anything. So I want to make sure we get everything that we can. Oh, it's, no, it's been great talking to you. and We've covered a lot. I'm sure we've missed a ton. Is, it, is this where we go to the call-in portion? Yeah. I'm not that popular. Nobody's calling me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to make sure, give you a chance to say how people can follow your work um, and see what you're up to. Awesome. Thanks. Um, so I'm using the Summers Psych handle. So S-O-M-E-R-S-P-S-Y-C-H. And you can find me on the web, uh, Twitter, Insta. Um, and uh, yeah, please uh, have a look. And um, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd love to be in touch with people. You know, I'm, 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 I'm new to the sort of the whole social scene, but um, um, really getting a lot out of um, reading what people are are saying, you know, comments, direct messages. Um, I think it's a really important time. I mean, I'm. I, this is not like my, you know, uh, my wheelhouse, right? Social media, but but I'm but I'm committed to it because I think that this is a really important time for uh, dialogue. Yeah, and you know, the, the experiences I've had getting shut down. Um, by my academic colleagues, just further reinforces to me that okay, um, this is this is very important. We've got to come together. Uh, Portugal made their shift because they had established a degree of consensus. Mm-hmm. They had enough talk among enough people to say, okay, this is this is something everybody has to be a part of. If you don't see yourself as part of the solution, then there's something missing. Because everyone needs to play a role, and I think that's where we are in Canada right now. So yeah, so thank, thanks for mentioning that, Nathan. If, if people want to want to connect, I'd be you know thrilled, and hopefully together we can uh, come to some real consensus 
and begin making a positive difference for people. And I don't think it's an unreasonable position to simply ask for dialogue. So um, thanks for coming on and giving us time. If you can hang on a second, uh, I'll say bye offline.